I'm here with my old friend Alan Not Craig, who's uh, living in Stellenbosch nowadays. But we're sitting in Rosebank in the sunshine. Motherland, is this one of your favorite haunts? Yeah, Motherland makes a decent cup of coffee. Joburg's getting better coffee than Stellenbosch nowadays. Yeah, well, I guess it's not too difficult. Um, but Alan, it's been an interesting story. You, you're busy with another new venture. But the, the last time the public knew about you was um, at the Mixit. You, you, you'd built this company called World of Avatar. Uh, you seemed to be going places. Then you did a big deal on Mixit. Um, and then you left pretty quickly. For the record, what actually happened there? Uh, well, you know, World of Avatar started 2010. And we bought Mixit in 2011, October 2011. And I left Mixit in October and World of Avatar in October 2012. So... I was actually only at Mixit for about a year, and it's been almost, it's actually been exactly three years since I left. But it was very much my last big entrepreneurial endeavor. And, you know, the, there's a long story and there's a short story. The short story is me and my partners had a fallout. We just couldn't agree on, on how to run the business and, and where to from here. So, you know, I, I didn't win that fight. And uh, it was, you know, it wasn't the best moment of my whole life, but it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me because I've subsequently gone on to to some great exciting things although I do still look at Mixit with uh, some some fondness and I, and I still believe it had an opportunity to be the, the WeChat of Africa you know bridging that gap from feature phone social networks to smartphone social networks you know, it is uh, when one reflects on these kind of issues and I had the same experience uh, in a company that I was running and, and then departed you you do learn a lot and I guess you learn a lot about yourself yeah you know you learn a lot about yourself, you learn a lot about your wife, <laughs> you learn a lot about partnerships and what's important in a partnership. I learned a lot about how to run a business. I think I was making some fundamental mistakes. I've got three big rules in my life now when it comes to business. I'm, I'm very frugal. I always underpromise, and I have a tendency to exaggerate, so it's difficult to underpromise. And I, f- and I focus, and I have to concentrate on one thing at a time. So if nothing else, I learned some big lessons out of all of that. Now, Alan, you have had international experience. Uh, You did your chartered accountancy here in South Africa and then went and traveled the world. At that point, when you left Mixit, when it wasn't exactly a high point in your life, did you consider leaving the country, working somewhere else? Absolutely. I I, um, actually packed our kids on on a plane and we went to America. We hired an RV and drove for two months. And at the back of my mind, I thought to myself, you know, maybe I'm just not cut out for this. Uh, Maybe I'm Maybe I'm just not as supposed to be an entrepreneur, or maybe I'm not good at tech. And uh, and you know, I went to the states, and I and I came back, and I realized, you know, South Africa is the land of opportunity, and and our network is here. We've got an edge here. The opportunity is here. The problems are here. And uh, America might have opportunity, but there's a hell of a lot of more competition. So I think what the nice thing about that little break for me was it really confirmed in my mind that, in my opinion, South Africa is probably the best place in the world to be an entrepreneur. And uh, the opportunity for in Africa is so big. And, uh, and I was on the right track around what we were trying to achieve. I just perhaps had gone about things in slightly the wrong way, and I decided I was going to try it again, but this time learned from my mistakes. And it's, taken, it's, it's now taken me you know, almost two and a half years before I've really had the guts to really plunge myself back into entrepreneurship. But now with this new business, Hero Telecoms, I think I've got another good shot. Yeah? Talk about that in a moment, but between Hero Telecoms and Mixit, uh, you, you got into a Wi-Fi program helping municipalities. If I remember in a non-profit yeah we started a non-profit called Project Isiswe and the pitch was basically internet access should be a utility like water and electricity and every South African should be within walking distance of free Wi-Fi and municipalities should take responsibility for that like they take responsibility for water, electricity, sanitation, roads so we um, 
we actually had some luck in Chwani, and now in the last two years, Chwani's gone from nothing to the uh, the continent's biggest public free Wi-Fi network. And uh, now how we, big? Uh, it's got 750 sites. Um, so about 22% of buildings in Chwani are now within walking distance of free Wi-Fi. By the end of the year, over a million people will have connected to the Wi-Fi. Its average speeds are 15 megs per second, so it's not poor Wi-Fi, it's pretty good Wi-Fi. And, uh, and by 2017, every citizen in Chwani will be within walking distance of Wi-Fi. So it's been a huge success. For me personally, it's helped me build my confidence in my own abilities, but also given me confidence in our government, to be perfectly honest. And, and I, I feel the guys I deal with are the kind of guys who could, can run the show, and they do run the show well. So I've, I've actually got a lot more hope now for the future of South Africa. How is it affordable? Well, there's four big components to a telco network, cost components. One is um, labor, so we use cheap Wi-Fi techies. Two is uh, a prop- a property uh, renting land, but if you work with the municipality, you can use their buildings without paying rent. Three is the equipment. Wi-Fi equipment is about 2,500 rand a base station versus 3G, which is about 150,000 rand a base station. So an order of magnitude difference in CapEx. And then the most important thing is bandwidth, fiber. And what we do is we go to telcos with a lot of fiber already, and we cut a deal where they give us discounted rates for fiber that's not being used, that's running through townships and rural areas anyway, and we give them marginal income on a sunk cost. And, the, and, the, and all of that together results in a total cost to the city of 19 cents per gig. To put that in perspective, you're paying about 2 rand per meg on Vodacom 3G out of bundle prepaid in a township, which is what everyone's using. 2 rand per meg, a meg is a thousand times smaller than a gig. So the city of Chwani pays 10,000 times less than retail rates for data, and it offers a 15 meg per second experience. So that's why the city can do it, because financially it makes sense. Do you get feedback from the people who are actually using it? Let me tell you, this has got to be the most, for the city of Chwani, it's been the most feedback they've ever had on anything. You know, I mean, we're talking youngsters here want Wi-Fi. You know, if I want to punish my kids nowadays, I take away the TV. Sorry. When I want to punish my kids, I take away the Wi-Fi, I make them watch TV. You know, kids, kids need Wi-Fi. They need to be on the internet, you know. And, and they actually call it in Chwani, they call it Sputla Wi-Fi, which is the nickname for the mayor, executive mayor, Ramakhopa. His nickname is Sputla. So it's Sputla Wi-Fi. And you'll, you'll drive through townships in, uh, in, in Pretoria, and you'll see people randomly standing around on their phone or on their laptop or on their tablet, and they're on the internet. And they're emailing their CV or they're downloading a textbook because it wasn't delivered or they're doing their homework or just doing something that I've taken for granted for 15 years, but for them is like... It's a game changer, so it's, it's hugely popular from an on-the-ground perspective, and for us, it's quite, it's quite nice. What about other parts of the country? Well, we've, we've done some deployments in Toyandu, Numpopa. Uh, we finished a deployment in Lusikisiki in Mount Freire in the Eastern Cape, which is as rural as you're going to get. We're doing some stuff in KZN. We're hoping PE is the next big one in Nelson Mandela Bay, which is dispatch you to make PE. We've done two sites in Western Cape. You know, so with any luck, the, the government adopts the Chwani free Wi-Fi model, and uh, by 2020, everyone has Wi-Fi. That's an amazing story, Alan. <laughs> it is amazing. And, and, but now you're moving to back into entrepreneurship, back into your, <coughs> excuse me, your own business. Well, yeah. So, so, so Project Seasway is no longer a startup. You know, we've become pretty big. And, and the truth is I shouldn't be let near something that's very big because I'll break it. You know, my tendency is to take risk. And this, we've got too much to lose now to bet it all. I've got a fantastic partner, Zahir Khan, who's been my chief operating officer for two years. I think from early next year he'll become the official CEO and, I, um, and I'm going to spend a lot more of my attention trying to get Herotel off the ground. And Herotel was an opportunity we saw because I was dealing with all these wireless internet service providers whereby we believe there's an opportunity to create the equivalent of, of Capitec but for the telecoms industry. Consolidate all these small wireless providers 
and create overnight some kind of big uh, residential broadband provider with a national brand, and we call it Herotel. That sounds like a big, hairy, audacious goal and something that, that is going to get up quite a few people's noses. Well, you know, I try not to make... I have a few enemies. I don't know, for some reason, some people don't like me. But, uh, you know, for the most part, you would think the telcos, other telcos would see that as a threat. Um, we actually position it as a value proposition because, you know, at the end of the day, the big guys... Uh, 100 rand a month or 500 rand a month doesn't move the needle for them anymore. So, But for a small wisp, a wireless internet service provider, a wisp, they're, they're, they're all over the country. They're doing the dirty work. They're connecting people to the internet. They're putting your, your house on the internet. They're giving you broadband. When it goes down, they fix it on the weekend. Um, they're charging you 500 rand a month, but they're making 28% net profit margins. That's pretty cool. Now, they could not be doing that if they did that the way a Vodacom or an MTN does things because you have to be frugal. You have to be really frugal. And these guys have figured out a way to be frugal and offer decent broadband. So in my opinion, what, what we're offering is a way to consolidate this kind of fragmented market, bring it to a big telco that can, we can buy the data from, and ultimately, I guess we're going to sell to one of those guys. Or who knows, maybe we'll buy one of those guys. Um, but in the end of the day, we are, we are going to be play, making a play in the residential broadband place. And if you, if you wanted to pick a competitor, it would probably be iBurst. So where are you in the process? iBurst, uh, that's, that's your old company. Yeah, that is actually. I used to run iBurst and uh, left there in 2009. And that is what we were trying to do in 2000. For those years, we were trying to build an, alter, an alternative to ADSL. But, you know, there's some massive problems with iBurst. One was it was a proprietary technology, it was licensed spectrum, um, very expensive CapEx and a centralized head office model. So, you know, all of those costs just add up to a situation where you can never make a profit. Um, because data networks don't have the luxury of being cross-subsidized by voice. And voice minutes have super profits and data actually doesn't have a lot of profit in it. So... You know, if you're a data-only network, you really need to be frugal. I think the WISPs figured out that model better than we did it when I was at iBurst. And whilst I, I was at iBurst, the WISPs were my enemy. You know, if they say, if you can't beat them, join them. So now I'm, I'm now with the WISPs, and, uh, and we're, trying to, we're trying to consolidate them. So getting back to that original question, how far along the process, how far along the road are you? Well, we, we're not officially alive, the brand. We had to make some announcements recently just to clear some rumors in the market. But we already have three WISPs on board, uh, one in George, one in the Western Cape, one in uh, uh, Gauteng. We, we're just getting another one on board in KZN. We've got another three. So I'd be, I'd, I'm hoping that by April next year we're ready to go live with a kind of 80% national footprint. Um, and then in two years' time, you know, we, we've kind of done and dusted most of it. And then we're just re- really getting into the game of offering more value, value to customers. And I guess what I'm trying to say, it's not really technical what we're trying to do. We're trying to solve a consumer problem, which is you want broadband at your house. You don't want it to be complicated. You want it to be uncapped. You want to pay a fixed amount. You don't want bull shock. You want it to get faster every year, and you don't want to pay more money every year. And that's kind of where we're trying to get, you know. So the value proposition for the consumer, why would I switch from Telcom ADSL to you? Well, to be perfectly honest, I think ADSL is a fantastic service. And I don't think you can compete with fiber or with decent ADSL if you're using wireless. But there's only a million landlines in the country. And there are 5 million households that pay for DSTV. So, you know, if I look at the market, I'm saying it's 5 million or strong that can afford a 700 rand a month broadband connection. A million of them are ADSL. Maximum 400,000 are going to be uh, fiber. That leaves 3.6 million people times by 700 rand a month, every month, that could potentially be a wireless broadband guy. I don't see more copper being laid on the ground. I see it all being wireless. So our market is not so much stealing other customers. It's kind of going into this untapped market, yeah. Your funders, have you gone to the bank? Have you used your own money? Have you found people to support you? Yeah, we've, uh, fortunately, still there's some people who support me. 
And uh, we had a, a first round uh, early last year where, just to get it off the ground, um, we had some kind of, for me, quite uh, credible guys from the banking industry invested. And then we finished another round now where we raised about 20 million rand, uh, which we can gear up to about 80 million. So we have about 80 million rand cash now in the bank. To, uh, and we've got also some big names, in my opinion, some credible guys who helped me strategically and also give me confidence that we're not just smoking our socks. They kicked the tires, they looked at the business models, and they, they feel like we're onto something. So I can't mention names. I'd, I'd rather not uh, talk about the individuals. But That's proper money, Alan, 80 million. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's big money in the big scheme of things, but in my small scheme of things, it's a lot of money, you know. So it sounds like you're almost Silicon Valley type here. First round of funding, second round of funding. Will there be more to come? Um, I don't think so much Silicon Valley. I think more Capitec. So when Capitec was growing, it had a first round, then it had a second round, and, th- and every round was actually to fund deposits, so, or fund loans or deposits. You know? So they're trying, they want to lend more. So they need more money to lend, you know. They try to fund it through deposits, but at the end of the day, you kind of there was a lot of funding required for that. So what we need, you know, we buy businesses at four PEs, okay, and they turn them into one PEs within a year and a half. And you know, it's expensive to sell equity to do that. So I don't know if our next round is going to be equity funded. It's probably going to be debt funded or prep funded. Um, but we we're going to need more money because it's really a question of why are we why are we not moving faster you know once the model's proven and you're making money and you're turning things around you just want to go as quickly as you possibly can you know yeah, there's no business that's better than one where if you throw the money at it you know exactly what's going to be coming back and in this case you you believe that that'll be the instance well uh, you know a year and a half ago it was a theory uh, now we've done it with two businesses turned them around completely helped the entrepreneurs that started them they like making more money than they ever made before they're part of a bigger story it's a big story, and, and with an exit down the line, so they don't have to be on the treadmill for the rest of their life. So I think, um, I don't think it's that risky anymore around the model. I mean, we've executed on the model, and it's just a question of can we carry on executing. And I've got, you know, it's not me. I, I talk a lot, but I'm not really doing a lot of the on-the-ground, boots-on-the-ground work. I've got fantastic partners. A guy called Corne de Villiers is the CEO. A guy called Fancel, uh, Buertas, CFO. I've got Francois Vessel. got a couple of Wisps on board. So we've got a great team, you know, and I know with that team we can probably pull it off. So are you becoming a serial entrepreneur? <laughs> I don't like that word, serial. But I would say that I, my wife worries that I go from business to business to business. I don't stay long enough in things. Um, I, at my first business, I'll find, I, I, I exited in 2007 for cash. You know, I was off made an offer I couldn't refuse. And I actually realized in retrospect that it was a mistake because that business, I just thought it was too good to be true. We were making too much money. And I thought, let me just get out while the going's good. It's like when the shares are going up and you think, oh, it's too good and you sell. Hold on to something when it's going up. Get out of something when it's going down. I burst. I didn't make any money. World of Avatar and Mixit, I should have made money, but uh, you know that ended prematurely for me. Um, so this world of mine, Heritel and everything we're doing, I'm, I don't necessarily think I'll be running Heritel forever, but I'm hoping to be part of that story for, for a very long time. But my real talent is in getting things off the ground and started and then handing over to guys who can run things. Yeah. And writing. You've just written a, a book. How's that been? Well, first of all, Why? Well, so my fourth book, and my first book was the best-selling book in South Africa that year, 2008, Don't Panic, and then subsequently I haven't done so well. <laughs> so my sequel to that, Really Don't Panic, and Muni Stresni didn't, uh, didn't sell out, but um, Mervinomics was the story of Mixit, also didn't, it was a good story, but didn't really sell very well. This one's called So You Want to Be a Hero, it's been a bit more iterative, and we really started internally, and now it's, I think it's being published um, by, well, I know it's being published, Quivertry are publishing it. And it might even be in exclusive books in November. And who knows where that goes, but that was really just an attempt to 
we were like trying to brainwash new employees, you know. So when people come in, we repeat ourselves a hundred times about what do we expect from people. So we created this employee handbook called So You Want to Be a Hero. Well, this is what you have to do to be a hero. And if you don't want to be a hero, fuck off, you know, like you can't work for us. And, uh, and this thing got shared a little bit and some people started ordering their own copies and we printed some more and then a publisher got hold of it and said, can we publish this? So it's a bit more tame, the, 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 the consumer version. But yeah, and, I, and we're going to publish a new book in the new year. And I kind of I feel I want to publish a book every year for the rest of my life. You know, but it's uh, interesting your choice of publisher. That's Tim Nox's publisher as well, isn't it? Yeah, actually, the publisher was quite a tricky one because I've always been quite loyal to a lady by the name of Louise Grantham. She's published all my other books, but she uses a distribution company which I completely like detest. This company, like it's the most useless book. To, distributor I've ever come across so I just said I'll only publish to you again if I don't have to use these people and she said she can't change so we had to part ways I ended up with the publishers a lady by the name of Ingeborg Pelser who are the Quivertry who are the guys behind Tim Noakes I know Tim Noakes new book is not with them but his original book the one that headed out of the park is them so hopefully we're their next headed out of the park you know Alan what about your background entrepreneurs are supposedly born that way uh, your dad started, ran uh, Vodacom, then went and ran Celsius as well. Is it a, a bit about the apple not falling far from the tree or were there other influences? Yeah, I feel my dad, uh, my dad's a legend, you know, and I'm, I'm very fortunate to have a guy like that in my life, like an untapped mentor, like he doesn't like talking to people, but he has to talk to me, you know, like dad, you have to talk to me, you have to give me advice. So I've been very lucky, but, but he never owned equity in a business ever. So if there's one thing I've learned from that, I want to I want to control my destiny. I want, uh, financial freedom only comes from equity, so um, I don't want to. I don't necess- I want to be in that sense starting my own businesses with my own equity, taking my own risks. Uh, my dad's never actually ever said I should be an entrepreneur. Every time I've wanted to start a business, he said it's stupid. Including my last thing, he said it's stupid. You're wasting your time. You're going to lose your money. Um, so I've gone a little bit against the grain on that stuff. I wouldn't say I've always been an entrepreneur. I, I used to sell ices on the playground when I was a kid. And I always had a day, uh, like a weekend job. But how old were you at that stage, okay. selling ICs? Well, I used to run the book for uh, the betting club. You know, we used to bet on Premier League in school, so I ran that from when I was about twelve. But I sold ICs from about the age of ten, for about ten cents, and I bought them for one cent, sold them for ten cents. And then, and and second break in Pretoria in summer is hot, so you sold a lot of ICs. But the what did you do with the money? I I, sp- I spent it. You know, the, part of the reason I need to make money is because I tend, I tend to spend a lot of money. I need money so I can spend money. Some people want to make money to put it in the bank and look at it. I don't want to look at my money. I don't want to put it in the bath. I don't want to bath in it. My brother's a bit like that. He's like very conservative. I just want to spend like crazy, you know. And I need money to be able to spend. And I need to be able to put my kids through school. And I want to be able to go on holiday once a year. So, so I, I, need to, I need to be able to make money. And, uh, and I don't think I'm employable. So I didn't ever think I'd start my own business. When I, when I qualified as a CA, I worked in New York for a while. We came back to South Africa in 20, 2003, and I couldn't get a job. I was looking for a job in a bank, and nobody was hiring. It was the recession of 2003. And I had a chance to start a business, and I started a business, and uh, now I'm damaged goods. I can't go back. You know? Alan, I, I spent September in London talking to a lot of young South Africans who, like you, went overseas, played around a little bit, thinking about coming back to South Africa but worried that they won't like you be able to get a job particularly the white guys would you have any advice suggestions for them well my first piece of advice is come back you know and sadly even in South Africa we only get negative stories so we in this in South Africa we get this kind of feeling that it's not as good as we look around and life is amazing but we read the papers and life is terrible so 
but at least you can look around and balance what you're getting from the new, from traditional media. Uh, and then, in the, and if you're living in America or Australia and London, all you're getting is that negative, and you're not actually seeing that actually it's better than it was 20 years ago, or 10 years ago, or five years ago. It is better. Every day it's better. I know we've got problems. I know we've got blackouts, and I know we've got corruption. But it's still better on average for everyone. Everyone, not just the poor or the rich or anybody. Everyone's better. So it's a good place to live, but it's not a good place if you don't want to take risk. If you if you want to have a comfortable life and get a pension and just be cool and you know, not have any worries, then probably better place in the world to live but if you want to make a difference if you want to make money but more importantly than make money if you want to make a difference you want to move the needle you want to help people you're not going to find a better place in the whole world to help people because this country's got third world problems first world infrastructure hard to make a difference in Kenya because you can't get from A to B there's no roads South Africa's got roads it's got electricity it's got telecoms it's got banks it's got systems it's got everything you know and you can you can live a comfortable life your kids can go to a decent school and you can make a difference and I think you can make a lot of money so you can almost apply the benefits of being in a third world infrastructure to a frontier economy. Yeah. Third world opportunity, first world infrastructure. Are you at some point in time though wanting to get hard currency? Because all of that's great. However, in a South African context where you have a sliding rand for reasons that are too many for us to start discussing now. But it, it does mean that in a global sense you're becoming, we uh, well, your, your finances are becoming weaker every year. If your plan is to live anywhere else, then you're in trouble because the rand's hard to live anywhere else on the rand. But if you're living in South Africa, the rand's great currency. Um, if you want to go have an overseas holiday regularly, it gets expensive. You know, okay, so those are the negatives. I think a weak rand's good for our economy. It's good for manufacturing. It's good for exports. So in general, it's actually pretty good. Not so good if oil prices start going up. But um, you know, I don't have a I don't have a plan B. I don't have another passport. My plan B is my chartered accounting qualification. If it really goes pear-shaped, I'm hoping somewhere in the world they want me. But I don't think I need a plan B. I think South Africa, 20 years from now, is going to be better than it was 20 years ago and, and today. So I don't think we need a plan B. I do think we're going to go through a bit of an economic storm in the next five years. But we're going to get through it like we always do. And there's going to be massive opportunity in the middle of that storm for people like me who are comfortable with risk and uncertainty and taking advantage of uh, chaos. And But it's going to be better than that afterwards. And, you know... I, when I was in New York in 20, 2003, the rand was 14 rand to the dollar. And then in 2008, it was 6 rand to the dollar. And guess what? We're back to 14 rand to the dollar. So you know what? Like all those guys took their money offshore in 2003, and then they brought it back in 2007. So they keep, they keep halving their money because they're running with the crowd instead of just taking a view. My view is South Africa is good to go. The land of opportunity. Maybe if I'm 55, I'll be thinking differently. Maybe my risk frame is different, but I'm 38. I can take risk. It's interesting as uh, we sit here in uh, the Rosebank zone and there's an economic downturn upon us and yet this place is full. We hear uh, trolleys going past us and uh, people all over the place. But most of all, for those who are listening to this in London, we look up to a bright sunny sky which we seem to get many days of the year. Did that ever bother you when you were outside of the country? The weather? We often talk about the weather as being a big magnet for South Africans. Yeah. In my time out of the country, the things I've missed the most were America, you can't EFT. So you have to post a check. That irritated me a little bit. So I take that for granted in South Africa, that can just EFT you. Um, the weather is a massive thing. I, you know, New York, London, I played terrible weather. Sport, I couldn't watch cricket and rugby. You know, I missed cricket, a lot of cricket. But the biggest thing is people. You know, these South Africans are our people. South African, black, South Africans, Indian, colored, white, Muslim, whatever. It doesn't matter what you, how you look, 
what God you pray to. It's, we have the same sense of humor. We have a bit of sarcasm. We, we understand irony. I'm not sure that's a word in the American language. We, um, we can laugh at ourselves. We don't sell all the time. Like in America, they sell all the time. Um, the UK is probably quite similar in terms of that self-deprecating attitude. But, the, but in uh, the England, it's like the system's bro- like locked in. Like you'll never break into the system. At least you can break through to the... You can get, you can, you can get into the game here in South Africa. I just miss the people. I think that's what South Africans miss. I would miss that the most if I had to ever leave the country. People, South African people. Okay, some quick answers. What car do you drive? A Honda Jazz, 2003. Where do you live? On a wine farm in Stellenbosch. Why? Because I want my kids to grow up on a farm and we've got chickens and I've got an amazing view and I rent. That's the cheapest way to live in a wine farm. <laughs> oh, Pit Fulion would uh, agree with that. Uh, can the Springboks win the World Cup? Of course the Springboks can win the World Cup. I don't think they deserve to win the World Cup on form. And I don't think the Springboks have transformed. So actually, to be perfectly honest, I, I, I'm not a Springbok supporter anymore. I'm more a Proteus supporter. <laughs> I buy into the Proteus. Like I like AB and Amla and this Robado guy and Faf and I like the dynamic. And I like those SA rugby players, but it just doesn't feel like it's changed, you know. And I just think this country has to change in every way. Otherwise, it's going to die, you know. You can't have 50 years of what happened and then just carry on the way it was. You know, some things have to change and some people have to make sacrifices. And Who's your favorite other executive, not person that you work with? Well, my, in my opinion, the number one living entrepreneur in South Africa is Christo Um Your favorite football team, soccer side in the UK? Man United. But Fav- I started supporting Man United in the 80s when nobody supported Man United and then they beat Crystal Palace in the 89 FA Cup Final 3-2 and that's when they started the ride. Favorite rugby player? Uh, ever, probably Ruben Kruger, but uh, I like Brian Abana. And your favorite soccer player? Uh, this this there's this Ajax guy. I can't remember his name now. He's playing for Bafana Bafana. He's amazing. But probably uh, my favorite soccer figure ever was Alex Ferguson. I think he's an incredible coach. If I could coach you read that book? Yeah, all well, his recent book. Well, he's written a few now. Well, the most recent book on leadership. Uh, I just think I just read his biography, his latest biography, about a year ago. So I'm not sure if it's recent or not. I think this is even even more recent than that because now he's uh, he's at business schools and uh, and lecturing at Harvard, I think, on leadership. Managing an uh, English Premier League team like Man United is like managing Mixit. A tech company is full of very creative, talented individuals. There's a whole lot of very good guys, and then there's always a star. And you need to have that star, like a Ronaldo or David Beckham. You need them, but you need to keep them in check. And you never can become bigger than the team. And you've got to keep all these egos together. And you've got to keep them moving in the same direction. If you don't have people like that, you can't be innovative. And then you'll die, right? Then you're just like a bank or like a boring bank, you know? The way Alex Ferguson managed Man United is, I think, the template for how people should manage tech companies. Did you, uh, where did you go to school? The Glen High. It's a government school in Pretoria. It's like a feeder school for Polesmore. Elon Musk, do you have a view? Uh, I, I have a lot of respect for him. Not a big fan. Um, I think uh, I think he's. I think where we different is he kind of seems quite pessimistic about the world, which is why he wants to go to Mars. And whereas I'm very optimistic about the world, and I don't want to solve the problems in the world. And um, I, I really like Steve Jobs, though. You know, whenever I watch those Steve Jobs interviews, I just I get like I get incredibly horny, like excited. That guy. 
was an amazing guy. The second iteration, you know, when he was the new jobs, amazing guy. If I could be one tenth of the guy that guy was, I, I would have said I, I would have achieved my entrepreneurial dreams. Yeah. iOS or Android? iOS always. Uh, Windows or Apple? Apple always. Hello, not Craig. It's been a privilege. Thank you.